So to start us off this morning, I want to talk to you about a hero of mine. Uh, this man's name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you, are you familiar? Have you heard? Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Uh, what makes uh, his story so unique that he was a pastor in Berlin in the early 30s up into the early, or the 30s all the way up into the 40s. And if you know anything about history, that was an interesting time to be a pastor in the middle of Berlin, Germany uh, during that time. And what's interesting a bit about his story, and right now I'm reading a, a, a biography uh, about his life and learning more and more about him is that he used that opportunity to make a stand against uh, a nation that was going the complete opposite way than what God was calling the church to be. In fact, there were even churches, I didn't realize this, but there was a, the, the German state church started to align itself with the Nazi party. And so he started, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, along with other amazing theologians and like Karl Barth, uh, started this, what they call the confessing church that said, we're not going to align ourselves with the Nazi party, we're going to align ourselves with the word of God. And so they, uh, by standing up to this, and, they, and they, there were moments where he was protecting Jewish people in his church, uh, it was just an amazing thing. And uh, so much so, uh, what I love about him is that he saw how there was so much energy in trying to, in a sense, uh, take over the world uh, with the, the Nazi parties was trying to take over the world. And so he said, we're going to have to train Christians as much as they're training. And so he started an illegal seminary. And this illegal seminary was across the river from a Luftwaffe training camp. And he says, I, we need to out-train them with the scripture. And I thought, oh, this is awesome. And he was later arrested in 1943 for that illegal um, uh, seminary. And he was training Christians. And he was killed in 1945, three weeks before the war was over. And... and and what I just, I'm just, it's one thing, I mean, just see that level of courage. But it's another, as I'm learning about him, that he had a choice to choose a little bit easier path. You see, in the early 30s, before war broke out, he found himself in America, and he was single at the time. Uh, he, he, in fact, he was single his whole life. And so he could have very well, uh, could easily have stayed in America because he absolutely loved it. He, he went to a church in Harlem, and he just absolutely loved uh, the American church. And so he was like, he could have easily stayed when things started getting dicey in Germany, but he chose to go back to Germany to his people, to be a voice for Jesus. And then even early on um, in the late 30s, when things were starting to get really dicey in Germany, he had an opportunity to take a church in London, a German-speaking church in London, and he was wrestling with this. I know that I could, I could do good things for God in London, and I know what awaits me here in Germany is very uncertain, and yet he chose to stay. And I, and I think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and I think in my own life, because anytime I read something like that, I, it kind of becomes a reflection on me. I'm like, in that moment when courage is needed, would I have enough courage? In that moment when deciding what's the easier way, would I have been able to be like Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, no, I'm going to stay in Germany and stand against a terrible, tyrannical regime? Could I have done that or would I have chosen 
the easy way out. Well, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, like a lot of uh, the first century Christians, there was just something about the first century Christians that were absolutely fearless in their faith. Their followership was absolutely fearless. They weren't fragile. Their faith was not fragile. You know why the first century Christians, their faith was not fragile? Because Jesus was not fragile. And because Jesus wasn't fragile and to follow him, he causes followers to not be fragile. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Aren't you glad you came to church? It's really quiet in here, right? It's weighty. And it's not a subject I imagine we think about a lot, but I want, I want you to be prepared as I want to be prepared that when we're ever faced with a situation that demands courage to have faith and confidence in God, that we will be prepared to have that kind of faith and confidence in God. When pressure and persecution arounds us, or around us tries to push us the other way. And so the question I'm kind of left with was, how was it that people like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and he's just one of many examples, but first century Christians, how did they do it? How did they face insurmountable pressure from the government, insurmountable pressure from uh, religious sects that were trying to stamp them out? How did they do that? How did they have that kind of courage when it was called on for? And so uh, the secret is actually found in a letter in uh, Hebrews. And this letter in Hebrews, uh, we don't know who the author is. You know, some say Paul, but I, you know, most theologians don't think that it's Paul uh, that wrote Hebrews. So we don't really know uh, who wrote Hebrews, but we do know why they wrote Hebrews. Because there were these Jewish Christians around Jerusalem, and this is about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And these, these followers, these Christians, were starting to see persecution. They were starting to feel persecution. And they were starting to hear stories of their key church leaders being martyred, being killed, imprisoned, or even beaten. And it was doing something to that early church. They, they were fearful. And they were scared. They're like, well, if they're going to kill their, our leaders, then what are they going to do to me? And so to encourage these Christians, this writer in Hebrews uh, spends about two chapters in kind of encouraging them as they face persecution and as they face pressure. And so the writer starts off uh, his, his middle section and it says this. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And the assurance about what we do not see. I, I love how he's the, the, the author is defining faith for us because I think sometimes in church, if we're not careful, we think faith is like a power to wield. You know, I've got faith and it's like I've pulled out a power, a special superpower, right? It, but it's, it's not that. Faith is a confidence. It's a confidence in God that God is going to do what he promised he will do. And and if you're not a Christian this morning, you're thinking, well, I'm not a person of faith. No, every person is a person of faith. Whether you're a Christian or not, we have all lived by faith. And let me give you an example. Uh, do you remember that, that moment when you started a brand new job? Do you remember that? that word, right? Y'all don't have jobs? Don't, uh, no. uh, There's like three people said, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 then we need to talk about work uh, next week. Um, <laughs> Be productive with your life, right? Now, uh, we all started a new job. And uh, like, like most jobs, when you start, you don't, they don't pay you, then you work, right? You are 
paid after you do the work, right? So for the first two weeks, you had faith that they were going to pay you. And, and after two weeks, you're like, I don't know if I trust these people to pay me, but you had faith. You worked based on the character of the people in the company that at the end of those two weeks, that your hard work was going to be rewarded with a paycheck. You worked by faith. You lived by faith. You had confidence in the organization to pay you. You were living by faith. And that's kind of what the, that's basically what the writer is saying in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, so it's the confidence of what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. This, and this is what the author is saying, this is what the ancients were commended for. Now remember, he's talking to first century Christians around Jerusalem, and he's reminding them that you're living by faith, but you're also living this faith in a part of a legacy of people that lived their life in faith in God. And then he talked about, you know, the, the author talks about Noah and Sarah and Abraham, all these examples of people that were living and behaving as if God would keep his promises. And so he lived that way. And, and, but unfortunately, the author continues on in verse 13 when he said this, that all these people were still living by faith when they died. That's an interesting kind of sentence there. They did not receive the things promised. Interesting. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. At the, the author is saying, is encouraging, he says, that this is the kind of faith that these, these ancient people had, Abraham and Sarah and Noah, all these amazing legacy of faith, that they had faith in the promises of God that outweighed their fear of death and that they never saw the promise fulfilled in their lifetime. In fact, it got so bad as, as the author is explaining, as he's talking about the prophets and all these, he says, this is how bad it got, that some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. He goes on to say that they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And the author is reminding them, they faced this pressure, but they did so with this fearless faith, even in a faith and confidence in God's promises that they didn't even see realized in their lifetime. And you see this story and you, and you, you see this and this is a little convicting, isn't it? That if I was in that position, if I was in that, their shoes, would I have that same confidence that they displayed with God? Would I have that same confidence in God? And this author, as he's writing this letter, I love what, he, what they say, the author says. It says, the world was not worthy of them. Man, that's good. They wandered in the deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. I mean, they didn't have their mansions. They didn't have their houses. They didn't have a, they were just, they had a, a faith that warranted so much heroic type living. It was raw and censored. It was awe-inspiring. And then, he, then the verse continues. And it says this, that they, these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. None of them. 
Why? Why did they not receive what was promised? Verse 40, they tell this. Since God had planned something better. Can y'all say better with me? Better. Better. One more time. For us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now this is a, this is a really big idea. And I think this is, touches on attention. We all feel it sometime in our life. And that is we feel like God has promised maybe something for us or to us. And we're waiting and God doesn't seem to know our timing. Have you ever felt that? And that when you pray, you're like, God, remember, you know, uh, still down here, uh, still working this out. I, 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 I really feel like I'm supposed to do this. And yet I haven't seen, uh, I don't know if you, if, uh, you know, time is different up there. So I just want to let you know, this would be a good time. Have you ever prayed that prayer to God? This would be a really good time. And I imagine that's what the ancients felt. That, you know, Abraham's like, when's this nation that's going to bless all people is going to happen, right? Sarah's like, uh, so when am I going to get pregnant? I'm in my old age. When is this going to happen? Noah, how long is this going to rain? <laughs> uh, he, he didn't understand the desert, did he? Uh, we... They're waiting on the promise and they didn't fully see the promise. And the reason was because God had something better. God had something better. And maybe the reason why you don't see the thing that you're waiting on is because God has something better. And it has to do more that's outside of your, just your life but other people involved. And that's exactly what happened here. The writer is basically saying, and this word perfect is this Greek word teleothosin. Y'all wouldn't know if I got that wrong anyway. Uh, so, um, I think I said it right. Teleothosin, yeah. Teleothosin, which is to bring completion that these ancients, this was what's crazy. These ancients were looking forward to something. I love this. The ancients look forward to a promise of a Messiah. And guess what? They were faithful. And this is also convicting as, as he's, as the writer is talking to the first century Christian, and I believe he's talking to the 21st century Christian, where Jesus is the promise realized, and we look back and we're fearful. How is it, and it's so convicting, how these ancients were looking forward and they were faithful, and yet oftentimes I feel like in my own faith journey, I look back and I see the promise realized. I see God's promise realized through, the, through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm still fearful. How is it? We still are driven by fear. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to this? And the first century Christians would be thinking that. They're like, I get it. But there is real pressure. And for the first century Christians, there was a government that wasn't very happy with Christianity. There were religious sectors like uh, Judaism that wasn't happy with Christianity. They were getting it from all sides. And so this, this writer then puts this to paper in, in chapter 12. And he said, therefore, therefore, in any time you see the therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what the there is for. Y'all like that? <laughs> so that's what they learned, Seminary 101, right? What's the therefore? Therefore. 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And what's the witnesses he's talking about? Everybody that he lists in chapter 11. All these amazing men and women of faith in chapter 11. And by the first century, there was a big cloud of witnesses. And can I tell you, by the 21st century, the cloud has only gotten bigger of witnesses that are cheering us on. This is a great cloud of witness that, so because we have all these people of amazing faith that are cheering us on, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What's that thing that you need to peel off? Could it be that the thing that, that keeps us from being as bold and as fearless as we need to is because we have a lot of things that are weighing us down? He says, Take off all those things so you can run this race. What's holding me back? Think about it. What's holding me back? What is the thing that is keeping me in a place where I'm so afraid? He goes on to say, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us, now I love this part. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Can I tell you, I need this verse like on top of my door in my office because I don't know about you, but I, it's easy for me to look at other Christians and think that I need to be running their faith race instead of my own. And, and, and it's so hard sometimes to be like, uh, well, things are going really well for them. What about me? Or things are going terrible for, the, for them. They must not have faith. What, you know, you need to look at me. That it's easy to kind of look up, but, but the writer is saying, you're running your race, your faith race. Don't compare yourselves to others. And then here is the secret. He says, fixing our eyes on blank. Fixing our eyes. You see, what you and I fix our eyes on will really determine our level of boldness and will really determine our level of confidence and faith, whatever we fix our eyes on. And maybe for some of us this morning, we're fixing our eyes on security. We're fixing our eyes on, on uh, security and, and uh, safety. Or maybe some of us are fixing our eyes on who's to blame. And, and we think everything is about, well, who should we blame for the mess that we fi find ourselves in? But the author says, no, 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 fix our eyes on Jesus. This Greek word fixing is to take something that is distracted and dial it in, right? Have you ever had a, a moment when you're speaking to your teenage kids um, and they're not dialed in? And so you just like throw something out there like murder. And then they're like, what? What, what did you say? <laughs> like, like, I don't recommend that actually. Uh, they'll call someone on you. Um, but it's like that, that and, that's, and that's what that Greek word is connoting is this idea of taking something that's distracted and focusing it on Jesus, Jesus being the reference point for everything. And if, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's who you're following. But not only that's who you're following, but he becomes the example of how we're to respond. Whether it's, Hey, in a situation, what would Jesus do? In a situation where in an argument, what would Jesus say? 
In a situation with how Jesus would respond, Jesus now becomes our reference point because something happens when he becomes the focal point of our life. It says this, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, if I was translating this scripture, I would say that Jesus was the OG. I guess there's not a lot of uh, 90s rap, uh, people that love 90s rap, but I'm from the 90s. We'd have called him the OG. Uh, For the joy set before him, get this, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne, uh, right hand of the throne of God. That following Jesus, and as we're following Jesus, we see that as our example, Jesus did not run from the cross. He did not hide from the cross. He faced the cross. And there is a connection between our boldness and our focus. There is a connection. And I never saw that until now that we sit here and we're like, oh, I want to be that bold. I want to be that courageous. I want to be this. I want to be that. But the question is, what are you focusing on? Jesus knew what he was all about. He knew his purpose and he was able to dial in that focus. And so he calls us, if you and I want to be bold for Jesus, we have to have Jesus as our focus. The more he's our focus, the more bold we can be for him. The verse continues, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So I got a question for you this morning. Question for me. Are you weary? Are you losing heart? Are you just sitting there going, wow, this whole country is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what a handbasket is, but if you ever find yourself in one, get out. You know, This is happening. This happened. Are you weary? When you walked in this morning, are you just weary? You lost heart. Could it be that you've lost your focus? Could it be that something else has taken your focus? Because here's the thing. If your focus isn't in a national leader to make everything right, can, can I tell you? then you're going to put everything into that election. And can I tell you, I think everyone should vote. Right, Bill and Yvette, right? Everyone should vote. Everyone should vote. But our hope is not found in if the person we wanted to vote for gets into office. Our hope is found in Jesus because a, a great national leader can do a lot of things, but he cannot or he or she cannot heal the soul of a nation. Only Jesus can do that. So... So is that what you're hoping on? Is that, is that guided in? Or, and and I, know what, I know what your hope is in based on what you're looking at. And if you're watching CNN or Fox News 24-7 hours a day, we know where your hope is lying in. Can I tell you? I, I see this in my own life. The more I have to balance, and this is kind of a, a personal thing, so don't, I'm not putting this on you. I have to balance with how much news I watch, with how much I read the scriptures and pray. Because when they get out of whack, 
when I watch way more news than my time with Jesus, then I'm like, oh, everything's going terrible. And can I tell you, people, they want to, sh- they want to get you anxious because you'll click on their article, right? That's what the media does. That's how they get paid. And I understand that. But are you weary? Have you lost heart? Could it be that you've lost sight of the one that you're supposed to have confidence in? And I, and I know this has been tested before. People like, I don't know, just an example, James, son of Zebedee. If you're watching The Chosen, he would be Big James, by the way. James, son of Zebedee, 44 AD. James finds himself standing before Herod Agrippa, and it's about 44 AD, and he's, and he's bold, and he's just so fired up because he saw Jesus die on a cross, and then he saw Jesus rise from the dead three days later, and so nothing scares him. He sees the promise revealed right in front of him, spent time, and he is bold. And so Herod Agrippa wants to stamp out Christianity. And so Herod Agrippa knows that he doesn't really have the power, but he has this person this one testimony of this individual, and I don't know if he pays him off or however he does it or threatens him, but he has this one testimony which isn't right because in Jewish law, you'd have to have a testimony of two, but that's here nor there. So he gets the one person to make up all these things about James. And so Herod Agrippa, because of based on this one man's testimony, sentences James to be beheaded with the sword. So James doesn't flinch. It's just so bold. He doesn't flinch. He faces it with courage and with joy, no no doubt. He's on his way to the place where they're going to behead him with the sword. And history tells us this. This is not in the Bible. This is history. That as he's going to the place where he's about to be beheaded, the man that testified against him was so shooken up by the whole thing and saw James's courage and his joy that he wasn't scared to die for his faith. That he was so moved that he interrupted the procession and he said, James, I'm so sorry. I, I lied or did this or that and I'm so, I want to be a follower of Jesus because what I see in you, I want in my life too. And so he says, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And then he goes on, he goes one step further. He says, I don't think you should be martyred by yourself. He chooses to be martyred with James that very day. The very first disciple to die for his faith. Then there's James. James is the younger brother of Jesus. This is about 63 AD. James is, uh, we, we think he's around the temple. He's high on a hill on a mount, or he's actually on the temple uh, itself. He's preaching to these, Jew, uh, these Jewish people, and he's talking about that, follow Jesus, the one that you crucify, follow him. And he's talking about this. This made the religious leaders so mad that they pushed James either off the building or off the mount. And history tells us that he falls on these rocks and his legs are broken. He can't move. He can't move. And, he, and he's in a lot of pain. And as he looks up, because these religious leaders want to kill him, they take these big boulders and they're about to crush James, the younger brother of Jesus. <coughs> they're about to crush him. James, as history tells us, says these words, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. 
echoing the same words his older brother did for the sins of the world. And as he dies, he dies for his faith. Do you know how he was able to endure this and how to have this much courage? Because his eyes were on Jesus, not on those rocks. How was James, son of Zebedee, able to face what he faced? Because his eyes were on Jesus, not on the sword. And then finally, Andrew, this is a powerful, this is around 66 AD. This is Peter's brother. Andrew. And Andrew is find himself in Greece and he's preaching against idolatry. And if, and he, if you know anything about Greece in the first century, uh, that would be a tough sell in the middle of the, you know, everywhere to say idolatry is wrong as he's surrounded by all these idols. And he's talking about this was, this made the crowd so angry that the crowd threatened to crucify Andrew. Now, Andrew knows what a crucifixion is all about. He saw Jesus crucified. He's seen many people crucified. He knows what it entails, and he doesn't back down of the threat. They threaten to crucify him, and he says, okay, do your worst. And history tells us, as he's making his way to a cross that he will hang on, this is what he says. O cross, most welcome and long looked for, with a willing mind, I joyfully come to you, being the disciple of him who hung on you. Can I just echo what the Hebrew writer said about those ancients that I think is also true of these disciples, that the world was not worthy of them. And here's the thing. How were they able to be so bold? How were they able to face such opposition, such persecution, and do so with such courage and humility? They, they didn't, it's not like they had a death wish, but they just weren't scared of death because they saw their Savior hanging on a cross, and then they saw their Savior three days later walking around eating breakfast with them. And they were because, like Andrew, his eyes weren't on the cross. His eyes or on Jesus. So I ask us again, are you weary? Have you lost heart? Now, I know sometimes when you think of like history and what it does, they go, oh, that's great for them, but are there any modern examples? I'd like to give you one modern example. And this is from, um, I listened to this uh, speech by Patrick Lencioni in uh, this leadership gathering that we did. It's called the Leadership Summit, Global Leadership Summit. And he told this, so I, I, I tried to find the reference, so I'm kind of using Patrick Lencioni's words in this. And so he, Patrick Lencioni talks about an individual, a Chinese Christian that's living in China. And the thing that you need to know about the, uh, the, the Chinese church, that there is a Chinese church, but unfortunately there is a government-run church in China. And in order to preach, you have to get it first approved, what you're going to say, by the government. And so, they, and so there's a lot of Christians that are like, we don't want that. We want the Bible to say what the Bible needs to say. And so they have the underground church. So there's two churches. There's the government okay church, and then there's the Chinese underground church. And you're thinking, well, how big is this Chinese underground church? Can I tell you estimations of 100 million Chinese Christians in China right now? 
Ladies and gentlemen, maybe within five years, there will be more Christians in China than in America. It's growing by that leaps and bounds. Even though they're facing pressure by their government. In fact, it's illegal to gather together. And let, you can gather in a okay sponsored, you know, Chinese sponsored, uh, government sponsored church. But these underground churches are illegal to attend. And so I could only imagine you're not going to be hanging out in a room this big. And you're always wondering where your neighbors, if those neighbors are going to rat you out to the government. And so this man decides to host an underground in his home. And he gathers these people together. The government finds out about it. And so he, uh, so, so as the government raids the house, everyone was able to escape but him. And so they put him in jail. And I believe Patrick Lencioni says it took two years for him to be imprisoned. Why? Not because he did something that was wrong, but because he hosted a gathering of followers of Jesus. After two years in jail, he applies for a political asi- uh, uh, faith asylum to come to America. And he comes to America and he's shocked because he's like, you guys can go to service every week? And he was also shocked that he's like, why don't everyone go to church every week? <coughs> uh, uh, that, that, he said that. I didn't say that. So, so just... <coughs> He he was like, everyone, I mean, he's like, this is the most amazing thing. And so this man was faithful, he would faithfully go to service each and every week. Then time began to go by and every week became every other week. And every other week became once a month. And once a month became every other month. And at one point, this man that was so devoted and went to prison for his faith found himself going to church Christmas and Easter. And then finally, as he woke into this, what's happening in his life, he was confronted with this. And with confronted with this, he said, I don't understand what government pressure couldn't... uh, uh, with government pressure and with um, and imprisonment couldn't stamp the fire out, my complacency, apathy, and comfort and distraction did. And so now he's, he's re-engaging with his faith again, but it's, it's fascinating to me that it was, for him, it was easier to stand up for Jesus when faced the pressure than it was to stand up for Jesus when everything's going well. And I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the future looks like for us in America. I don't know if we'll ever be caused a question, but I just wonder about this, the idea of when you and I are faced and we're we're called to have that moment of courage and boldness for our faith, will we be ready. Are you weary and have lost your heart? I'd say check your focus. Is your eyes focused on Jesus? Well, how can you fix your eyes on Jesus? I think a couple of things, you know, I, I think 
at some point in, with our faith that we need to grow in relationship with one another, with other followers of Jesus. And our conversations at some point need to move past the weather and how well the Cowboys are playing this weekend. <laughs> right? At some point, it needs to have, we need to have deeper conversations with each other to build each other up and encourage one another. And I think we have to be prepared because we never know when, it, when we're called upon to have that moment of courage and boldness for Jesus. So that's why we should read the scripture. This is why we should have times of prayer, building in the ability to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So when we're called to have that bold declaration that we're ready. I'll tell you one thing that builds me up is when I come out here and I hear you singing and I love it. Oh, I love it. When you guys are out singing the band and the, you know, the, so it's like the congregation is louder than the band. I love that. I mean, it fires me so much. I, I want to like, I'm like, I want to take on hell with a squirt gun Monday, right? <laughs> I'm like, let's go. There's something about seeing the people of God singing the praises of God. You're just like, there's something that builds you up in that moment. So what does it look like for you? What's that moment? Because you may have to have a moment of courage because some of you work in a place that's pretty hostile to your faith. And, and, and it's hostile to your faith. And there is a temptation for you to kind of play, you know, kind of be silent because it's easier and there's a temptation. But there may be a moment where something you're called upon to be bold in your faith. And my question is, you'll be ready if your eyes are fixed on Jesus. Maybe for some of you, it's your family. Can I tell you, there are people that go to this church. There's some that are young people that go to this church that they go to the church and their parents don't even go to the church. They're not even Christian. There's young people that are teenagers that are learning about Jesus and when they go home, it's not being echoed at home, the message of Jesus. Can I tell you, they're my heroes, by the way. And if you find yourself that you're the only person in your family that's a follower of Jesus, there is a temptation to tone it down a little bit. But can I tell you, there will be a moment when you're called, that courage is, you're, is calling you to be bold for Jesus and you will be ready if you've been spending time with your heavenly father in prayer. You'll be ready. There'll be moments with your friends where your convictions and the convictions of your friends are two totally different things. And there's going to be a temptation to let your convictions slide or be a little bit quiet about your convictions because you don't want to ruin the friendship. Can I tell you, there's going to be a moment when you're called to be bold for Jesus. And in that moment of courage, you will be ready if your eyes are fixed on Jesus. <coughs> we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because I don't know when that moment is. I don't know about you. I want to be ready. How about you? I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if we'll ever be called to lay down our life and die for the cause of Jesus. But can I tell you, we need to start practicing laying down our life now in submission to the mission and the calling he has for us. 
and not allow comfort, distraction, or apathy keep us from having our eyes fixed on Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's stand up to our feet. Let me pray for us. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, this was not an easy message to preach. It's not a fun message, but Lord, we need to be ready. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know this. There are a great cloud of witnesses and followers, men and women that died for their faith that are cheering us on. The world wasn't worthy of them. Lord, it's up to us now. Empower us. Help us see those moments of courage when we are called to be bold for you. And we do these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week for Tough as Nails Part 3.